Hey there, and welcome to the Intrigue Out Loud podcast channel. In no more than a few weeks' time, this channel will start filling up with regular recaps of the International Intrigue newsletter and longer-form interviews with Intrigue contributors and some of the world's top foreign affairs experts. That's actually where we're starting out with today. By way of introduction, I'm Ethan Plotkin, an editor at International Intrigue based in Washington, D.C., and I'll be the host for a lot of the content you'll hear on this channel. For this first preview edition, I wanted to sit down with someone who's examining international relations at a macro level, you know, 35,000 feet up, someone who's considering an important trend that's really driving foreign policy around the world. And to do that, I asked Charles Dunst to join me. His new book, Defeating the Dictators, was released yesterday in Europe and is designed to serve as sort of a roadmap that democracies can use to reclaim status on the global stage and out-innovate autocracies in a world that's increasingly defined by competition between the two systems. Dunst is an associate at the Asia Group, a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's a regular contributor to leading newspapers like the New York Times. And best of all, he joins me next. Welcome, Charles. Congratulations on your book. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's not easy summarizing uh, the prevailing trends in global politics into 300 or so pages. I think you did a great job. Uh, I hope we can kind of recreate your creative process here in a 20 or so minute conversation. Let's start off with uh, what I hope will be the most boring part of this conversation. I'm going to ask you to open up your Merriam-Webster, which I'm sure as a, an author you have handy. And define for us what a democracy is. There are lots of types of democracies. There are presidential systems, parliamentary systems. What did each of those have in common that make them democracies? Sure. Well, fundamentally, a democracy is a country in which voters, the people, the general public can elect a change in government, to put it very simply. That can be through a parliamentary system like the United Kingdom or kind of the odd system we have in the United States or a more general election system in which the person with, you know, 50.1% of the election wins. But that's the bottom line of what is a democracy, is a country in which voters can go to the ballot box, not be disenfranchised by institutions, by voter laws, and effectively change their government. So you have these array of countries that are all, I would say, democracies. They hit this minimal definition of democracy. So not every country that can have a change in government is necessarily a super functional democracy. I would think about somewhere like Poland, maybe, where theoretically the government could change, but currently the institutions are somewhat stacked. They don't really quite deliver as well. So I would hardly consider Poland a particularly functional democracy, but it is still a democracy by hitting that, that minimal definition. Is there a sliding scale for autocracies too? How do, how do we define those sorts of systems? Sure. I mean, on a baseline level, an autocracy is a system in which there can be no change to government, in which one party or one cadre of leaders or one family essentially control all the levers of power. And whether it's through aggressive repression or more kind of soft repression, there is no real opportunity for them to lose power. So somewhere that comes to mind on the relatively softer end of autocracy is a, is a country like Singapore, where there are some elections, but the ruling People's Action Party really can't lose for a variety of reasons. The institutions and the cards are very stacked in their favor. 
Whereas on the, obviously the harsher end of the spectrum, you probably have someone like Saudi Arabia where there are no real meaningful elections and the repression is much stronger than in Singapore. Certainly Singapore cracks down on super, you know, anti-government free, anti-government speech or something to that effect, but not so aggressively as in, uh, as in Saudi or uh, North Korea, of course, kind of these much more hardened autocracies. All right, now that we have that uh, political science 101 out of the way, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> let's get into it. So what is fundamentally then in your mind, we've defined these systems, what makes democracy a better system than autocracy? Well, I want to start with kind of the baseline answer to what does democracy deliver? Because I think a lot of the discussions around democracy focus on how democracy is a good in its own right, that freedom is a good in its own right. And, and to borrow from I believe those protesters in Myanmar, where there was a coup about a year and a half ago, there was this comment or this uh, sign they held up that said, happiness is not born in a cage. And I think that's a very clear demonstration of why democracy is superior on a, on a moral level. You just have more opportunities as a human to kind of pursue your passions, to be yourself, and to eventually be happy. But that definition of democracy is hardly enough, I think, to convince people when they look at a highly functional autocracy like Singapore or compared to perhaps their dysfunctional democracy and say, well, they're richer than I am. Their social safety net's better than mine. Why should I want to be in a democracy? And the answer there is pretty simple. The best innovation, the best art, the best products do still tend to come from democracies, both in the West and in Northeast Asia. If you think about Japan and South Korea, somewhere around of the world's 25 richest countries, uh, all but seven are democracies. Only two autocracies rank among the top 40 in life expectancy. You know, Japanese people live longer than Chinese people. Italians live longer than Saudis. Uh, innovation is almost exclusively in democracies, with the exception of Singapore and China, but still fall behind the leading autocracies. You know, the best films, the best art, the best novels do still come from democracies, as well as South Korea and Japan. If you live in a democracy, you are almost surely going to have a better education, become wealthier, live longer and have a richer cultural life than your counterparts in autocracies around the world. Can you pull that thread for us? I mean, is that correlative? Is it is it causative? What is it uh, about democracy in your mind that uh, promotes economic development that's uh, so technolo technologically uh, progressive and, and promotes human happiness? I mean, is it the democracy itself that's doing that or is it some other combination of forces? Well, it's, ir it's ironic because it's the willingness to embrace volatility that allows for the freedom of debate and information that is needed to produce great innovations like Google or great art. When you live in a repressive society and certain conversations are blocked off, whether in the sciences, whether in the arts, whether in political science, whatever, your options are limited in what you can produce. When your options are limited in what you can produce, you're not going to produce the best, whether that's a book, whether that's a painting, whether that's, I don't know, whether that's a, a vaccine. And I think the, the issues China's having right now to develop a functional, effective COVID vaccine do kind of demonstrate the problem here. And certainly in the past, you've had great authors write great books from the Soviet Union, but the best books are the ones that are actually blocked by the Soviet Union and held for 30 years before being found by someone in the West and then published in the West. So this is not to say that there aren't creative and innovative people in autocracies. There, there certainly are. There are tons of really smart scientists and tech people in countries like China. But on the whole, democracy's willingness to embrace chaos, tumult, and imperfections do make us better off in the long run. I've never gotten around to reading those, uh, those Soviet authors because each of their books tend to be, you know, something like a thousand pages. So 
Uh, I will take your word for that. Um, there was a period of time, albeit a brief one, in the 1980s and 90s when political scientists were saying that, uh, to borrow the, the name of your book, that dictators had been defeated uh, and that democracy's ascendancy was all but inevitable. What's happened in democracies since then that's damaged their standing and changed that calculation? Sure. I mean, I would put it actually fairly simply that the West, along with the broader West, so including Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, didn't take the steps necessary to cement our power at home in the wake of the Soviet Union's dissolution. I mean, we didn't really just manage victory well. There was this triumphalism that because the Soviet Union has had dissolved, it meant we won and that it, mean we, it, mean, it meant that we would win forever. And that complacency basically allowed us to, we let our social safety nets decline, we let money seep into our politics, which then weakened trust in our politics. We carried these ill-conceived wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think really critically, we promised countries like Hungary and Russia, which were emerging from years of autocracy, from years of communism, that by democratizing and liberalizing our economies, they'd become rich, and they'd become rich fast. Instead, rapid deregulation coupled with societies that didn't understand how to function in capitalism, by no fault of their own, left them in a state of complete shock and disarray. I mean, Russia was a complete disaster after this rapid deliberalization or deregulation, as, as was Hungary. And broadly, by continuing to deregulate our financial systems at home and allowing the extraordinary growth of financial trading without over, adequate oversight across the world, we set the world up for these crises in 97 and 2008, which if you actually reread the, the paper, newspapers now, when you reread what Chinese leaders were saying then, it's really reflective of the current kind of competition between the United States and China, because you had all these Chinese officials who grew up studying Western economics under Americans, under Brits, under French, whatever, and saw 2008 and said, this is enough. Like, your system has failed. There is a need for something new. So I think it's hard to overstate how those two crises really work weakened global confidence in democracies. And at home, the complete weakening of the social safety net, of you know, allowing money to come into government and all that just severely weakened people's trust in government. I mean, U.S. trust in government has gone steadily down since after 9-11. I mean, George Bush got a slight patriotic boost until like 2003-ish, but steadily down since. And that's pretty much the same story across the democratic world, where basically just decreased performance, which was the result of this triumphalism of, well, we've already done it. We've won more globalism, more trade, more globalization, more trade. We'll make everyone richer and we'll just all be better off in the long run. And certainly that made countries richer, but it didn't quite make people richer. And those people are essentially now just going to try to vote, vote the elites out at the ballot box and all that. So our, our, our allowing our performance to decline fueled voters' autocratic impulses at home and really strengthened illiberal actors who have a different vision for global order abroad. This is a conversation that, that's been ongoing for the past 12 months, I think, you know, since the start of the war in Ukraine. Questions have been raised about uh, whether the West uh, did a good enough job of integrating uh, the post-Soviet Russia into the Western order. What do you make of that debate? Do you think uh, the West should have, for instance, cooperated more with Russia on security issues and welcomed them more into the economic systems that the West had established? 
I think it depends which Russia we're talking about in the sense of a Vladimir Putin controlled Russia, I don't think was ever going to be a particularly effective partner of the United States or of the broader West or of democracies anywhere, really. I think Putin himself has a very clear commitment to making, for lack of a better phrase, making Russia great again. And that includes expansionism. I mean, he fundamentally does not think Ukraine is a country. So if we're talking about Vladimir Putin's Russia, no, I don't think any other any further inclusion in Western systems or any inclusion in Western trade pacts, pacts or anything like that would have really solved the problem. I think the issue is actually predates Putin. It was, I mean, there's this whole story about how the West, we essentially sent all these brilliant young Harvard students and economists into Russia to essentially manage their liberalization, and it didn't work. I mean, it, it, it sent the country into complete economic shock, and people were poorer than they'd been in the Soviet Union. I think it's hard to understate just how damaging that was for confidence in democracy in Russia and the willingness to accept a strong man like Putin who says, our economy has not been great. The West messed up our economy. I will fix it. And I will make you feel great again by taking back what was the Soviet Union, by restoring us to great power status. So there, there was an opportunity there, I think, with Russia, but the opportunity was lost by the, the economic, you know, complete economic failure in the, in the mid-90s. I touched on the, the the title of your book. It's a really provocative title. And I think in some ways you're an inheritor uh, to this school of thought that existed uh, in the early 1990s, promoted by people like Francis Fukuyama, that essentially pits democracies and autocracies against each other in a war that's meant to be won, you know, that will reach some sort of conclusion. Can either side ever really win this war or... Is the battle between autocracy and democracy perpetual? It's a hard question. I, I would lean towards perpetual. I think the world will kind of continue to exist on a spectrum. If we're going to put it on maybe a one to 100 spectrum and think, okay, what percentage of the world lives under democracy and what percentage of the world lives under autocracy? I don't think there's any clear measure after which we can claim victory. And I think that's actually a point of the book is that to continue winning this ongoing governance war, you need to continue performing well at home. There is no particular end date. There is no point at which we can say, all right, 80% of the world lives in democracies, that's good enough, let's just kind of let our systems decline at home and pursue you know, whatever we wanna do abroad, whatever our priorities are. That's not really how this works. So I don't think there is a natural end date here, nor do I think, these two systems can't exist together. I mean, it's one of the points I want to make very explicit that I made in the book is just because democracy is a better system does not mean we can't cooperate with autocracies right now. There are more autocracies than there are democracies. The idea that the United States could sit in Washington and say, okay, we're going to ignore 70, 65% of the world because they don't share our governing values is, is not reasonable. But you can wield those relationships with countries like Vietnam and Asia or like the UAE in the Middle East for our own domestic advantage. And that domestic advantage strengthens the functioning of our democracies, which will in turn strengthen public trust in our democracies. And that strong performance of democracies at home makes it more likely that the publics of a country like Vietnam or a country like Egypt look to us and say, I want that as my model. And with the United States or I want Japan as my model, I don't want Singapore and I don't want the UAE. So I do think they always will somewhat exist together, but that, that spectrum is probably how I best think about it. Why is economics so central to, to this story? I mean, I think you've touched on it a, a bit. You've used keywords here like, like regulation and deregulation for that matter. But what have conventional Western economic models gotten wrong over the past few, de few decades? I think it's ironic because 
the models got a lot right in the sense of they were right that increased free trade or increased globalization would make the world richer. I mean, the G world GDP under the liberal international order, so systems the United States set up after the World War II to essentially make the world function, so things like the United Nations and the World Trade Organization, the world got richer in a faster period than it ever has around the world, in, the, in history. More people were raised out of poverty in the last 70 years than in any other time in history. And that's not nothing, but I would argue that in the last 20 to 30 years, there was this misunderstanding that globalization would make people richer rather than countries richer. So when you have trade making the United States richer at the same time makes China richer, that's great. But it only really matters if that money, for lack of a better phrase, is trickling down to the general public. If it's not, and you're making just only, only CEOs richer, or only, you know, the top 0.1% richer, you're obviously not going to have your public's buy-in. If people's wages, if the most people's wages have stagnated for the last 15, 20 years, at the same time while the world gets richer, it should be no surprise that there is increased frustration from that same public. So the major mistake was thinking that people would somehow forgive their governance for basically outsourcing labor and then thus their earning potential and in many cases their dignity. There, there wasn't much of an understanding that we needed to do more to help out the person who lost their job due to globalization because it was cheaper to make all kinds of goods in China or Vietnam than in the United States or Germany. The, the mistake was thinking that voters wouldn't punish policymakers at the ballot box for that. Uh, you know, you said that the, the conventional models actually got a, a lot right. And the dirty little secret here is that even the autocrats sort of know that, right? I mean, so can you tell us about the, the Shenzhen miracle that you talk about in your book? Sure. So the Shenzhen miracle is deceptively simple, I, I, I would say. It really just describes the process by which Shenzhen, a major Chinese city, became that major Chinese city. 35 years ago, there was like almost nothing in Shenzhen. It was close, relatively close to Hong Kong, was relatively close to Guangdong, which were both economic centers, much more so Hong Kong, which is still controlled by the UK, and was and, and remains a major financial center. But Shenzhen had like no roads, almost nothing we would consider modern. It, people in Shenzhen were basically living how they did a thousand years ago. But this was the moment when uh, the Chinese government under Deng was really opening up and figuring out, we need to get rich by embracing at least some of the West's capitalist ideals. They were not going to become a free and open United States or anything like that. But there was a clear understanding of the need to adopt at least some Western economic principles. And the Shenzhen miracle is a fairly clear example of that, of essentially Chinese officials prioritize the investment of public funds in infrastructure in that city to draw in Western capital. And then when they had that money, they reinvested it in infrastructure over and over again. So you built basic infrastructure, you got money. Use that money to build even more infrastructure, like a modern traffic network and other public facilities. They continued doubling down a new infrastructure for emerging industries like biochemicals, a whole other set of se sectors. And then, of course, now Shenzhen's a major city with a huge high-tech industry that's grown really, really rapidly along with the financial services sector. So in tandem and kind of on the back of these necessary infrastructure investments, the city became a key link in the global supply chain, logistics and e-commerce have thrived. So by investing in infrastructure over and over again and modernizing your infrastructure for the 21st century, the city has become extremely rich. I mean, I think it's in the top 15-ish of rich cities around the world, but bigger than bigger GDP than cities you would think of as like Berlin, Atlanta. I think there are a few others on a few, definitely a few others you'd think of on that list. 
just by building infrastructure over and over again and building like infrastructure that that works and that is necessary it's it's not enough just to say okay the bridge is broken so we refix the bridge it's it, building that bridge in the first place fixing it before it breaks and then thinking about okay how will that bridge withstand the next 80 years of the 21st century so i i don't think it's that uh that complicated a notion as to say infrastructure and future focused infrastructure needs to be a continued focus of democratic governments everywhere. And frankly, I, I don't think it has been with the probably minor exception of Japan. I think Japan's infrastructure is extraordinary. It, but that too, like their tunnels and bridges are going to need repair. They are declining as well. And certainly the United States, we passed our own infrastructure package in recent years. But when you compare that infrastructure spending to China's infrastructure spending, it's like a drop in the water. You say that Western governments are experiencing a crisis of trust. I don't think that will be a surprise uh, to anyone that's followed uh, Western politics in the last decade or so. Uh, you have a great section about the the quote-unquote mistrust loop that's prevailing in Western democracies. Can you explain that for us? Sure. So when people don't trust their government, they're not going to listen to, support, or even engage with that government. And in democracies, that's really critical because that means people won't vote. And when people in Leeds or Gangwon are so disconnected from their governments because the governing elites in Washington and Westminster and Seoul don't seem to represent or govern or listen to them, they won't vote. And that's pretty much what's happened to varying degrees in democracies across the world. I mean, U.S. voter participation is extraordinarily poor, even in even uh, even for a democratic country, but the turnout is down in the UK. Turnout's down in uh, it's down in South Korea. It's definitely down in Israel. I mean, they've had a million elections, but turnout continues to go down. I think because people don't really trust the government already, and they think, well, the government hasn't done anything for me. They're not going to. It's the same thing over and over again. So why should I go vote? And when they don't vote, the government, of course, will not provide for them effectively because. Government officials, presidents, prime ministers, are not they're not mind readers. They can't serve a population from which they have grown distant. So when people don't trust their government and therefore opt out of civic participation, the result is this mistrust loop in which a distrustful public is disengaged, resulting in a government even more disconnected from that public. And that's going to produce policy that's only more disconnected from that public, which will produce a further deterioration of trust. And of course, when people don't trust their government, they are far more willing to vote for leaders and movements that rail against that same government for misgovernance, for corruption and whatever, and promise things new. I mean, really, with, without trust, democracy remains at risk. It seems part of the mistrust loop is driven by uh, the proliferation of information that's available to citizens in democracies. Autocracies have a, a distinct advantage there, right? They control their information ecosystems. So is that how democracy should regain trust by, you know, curtailing information options? No, definitely not by curtailing information options. But it is it is notable. And you're right that if you look at polls, two of the countries or three or four of the countries who rank among top the top performers for public trust in government are Singapore, China, the United Arab Emirates. And certainly there is a kernel of truth there. Those people do generally trust their government. They say, look, you've lifted us out of poverty by you know, 10,000 times over in terms of GDP growth, obviously you're gonna gain some legitimacy from that. But those numbers are at least partially skewed by the way people's media diets are limited. Uh, you know, by the way Beijing or Singapore or Abu Dhabi essentially control the information environment. So that is, I guess, an advantage for them on public trust, but 
again, limiting the information sector is going to limit people's creativity, which will limit innovation, which is only a problem in the long run. Not to mention the whole moral problem of limiting information and limiting people's options. So no, I, I don't think democracy should, should follow that at all. I think there's a need, though, for public officials particularly presidents, prime ministers, ruling parties or uh, opposition parties, to be a bit more careful in, in how they speak. I think these negative campaigns that we've seen recently, definitely the 2020 election in the United States, uh, definitely the 2022 election in South Korea, recent election, I mean, not so recent elections in the UK have been really negative. The, the, the view is not so much here's what I'm going to do. It's here's what this guy did really, really badly. And you need me to come in and just like not do that, which clearly has worked. I mean, Biden won the election. Yoon suk Yeol won his election in South Korea. But trust in both of those countries, governments have actually declined since they took office. And I think part of that, less so in the United States, is not being able to offer a hugely positive forward-looking vision. So one way for, to fix that is to basically have politicians just be smarter about how they speak because the reality is these governments do more than people give them credit for. There's this perception that the U.S. Congress is totally ineffective. It doesn't do anything. And it's just not true. They've passed pretty key regulations in recent years or really key funding bills for things as diverse as the USPS make funding our postal service to the infrastructure bill to the CHIPS Act, all of these things are important and good policy. So I actually think our, our maligned institutions get at least part of the job done. It's not perfect, but they're better than people think they are. So leaders really should just learn to speak in positive terms and frankly, talk about just how good at their jobs they really are. It seems like that'd be an easy, an easy selling point. Those are some of the ways that democracies, you know, in, in your words, can can get their houses in order. I think you have seven or eight total uh, policy recommendations, uh, ways for democracies to improve domestic governance. But what people still may not fully understand is the mechanism by which getting your own house in order will convince other countries to adopt your system. I mean, I think we've seen spreading democracy by force doesn't seem to work. You reject it a number of times in the book. But can democracies really export their systems by osmosis? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in spreading democracies by spreading democracy by making our democracies look like models again. The United States, United Kingdom, Japan, other leading democracies need to be performing so well in terms of economics, in terms of governance, that people in Vietnam and Egypt want to be like us, not like Singapore or the United Arab Emirates. And that was broadly the case until I would say maybe 10 to 15, 20 years ago, where China had not emerged as this incredibly functional, powerful country. Singapore was getting rich, but not quite rich enough and powerful enough to offer an alternative. And certainly the Gulf states were not there. Saudi was not there yet. The UAE was not there yet. And even Vietnam, Vietnam is not a particularly rich country, but it is a fairly effectively run autocracy where people are not calling for democracy so much. There's this notion of, well, let's kind of, they wouldn't actually say that, say it this way, but let's kind of fo follow the China path of development of relatively centralized government with this cadre of party leaders who essentially do what is best. And yeah, despite the, despite the corruption, despite the crackdowns, eventually we will be put on a, a path by marrying illiberal politics with liberal economics to make us a richer country like China. But so that was kind of, I would say, how we made this error after the Soviet Union fell, where we were that model by definition. There was no one else. Our system won. 
and countries like Singapore, or countries like Nepal, or countries you know, around the world basically thought, okay, well, this is the only option on offer, which is an uncomfortable thing for an autocratic country or a country that does not particularly have liberal economic sensibilities. Then we kind of just dropped out of that. Uh, we didn't. We didn't do as much as we could have to solidify our place. And as a result, you do have the Singapore's, the China's, the UAE's of the world who are offering more of a roadmap for the good life. So key for us to beat kind of beat that back and spread democracy so, somewhat softer over the next 20, 30 years. I mean, this is not a short term process is to essentially make sure the world again looks to us as a model of good governance and economic flourishing because they already look to us as an example of cultural flourishing. They already, you know, you will see far more American movies, French art, South Korean movies, South Korean novels around the world, or South Korean music, BTS around the world, than you will anything from China anything from Singapore, anything from the Gulf. I mean, it's remarkable. You travel around Southeast Asia, for example, the, the music you hear in the media you see is American and South Korean and maybe a little bit of Japan. Chinese music has not caught on there despite having large ethnic Chinese populations who speak the language. There, there's just something about the, there's something about democratic democracies, cultures that produces this type of art and entertainment that people still want. So we're already there. We already have that advantage, but it's making sure that governance and economic flourishing are what we can deliver. And kind of only then is there this opportunity to basically build a, a more functional global order centered around uh, democratic and liberal values. When you consider the events of the past year, Russia's failure in Ukraine, uh, at least Thus far, declining economic growth, civil unrest in China. Are democracies winning? I mean, d were the political scientists that were forecasting autocracy's death just a few decades too early? I think we're in a better position than we were two years ago. We're definitely in a mm -hmm. better position than we were when I started writing this book. There's no question. But I, I would not say that, you know, end of history style thinkers were 100 percent correct at all. I mean, uh, it's an ironic because I think The End of History is perhaps the most misunderstood book in existence. Uh, Fukuyama did, did not argue that democracies had emerged forever victorious in 92 and that everything would be peachy and keen. He didn't say that everything would be perfect after the Soviet Union fell. His argument was that with the defeat of the communist Soviet Union, liberal democracy had emerged as the only proper system for governing a country, the only one with legitimacy. And I would say he was half right. He was probably right until that emergence of China, of Singapore and the Arabian Gulf states, which began to demonstrate their ability to grow and govern without democracy and to get rich without democracy. I mean, I would say half right then because these countries are growing and still satiating their people with mostly liberal economic practices. All these countries are rich because of liberal trade with the rest of the world. So communist economics did fail. I mean, it's very obvious that communism is no way to run a country even if a liberal governance has not yet failed on its own and actually seems to be fairly solid in many places at the moment. And one of the reasons I think Fukuyama and that, I mean, of that school of, of thought, one, one reason I think he was particularly prescient was he actually did predict the rise of successful authoritarian models coming out of East Asia, specifically from China and Singapore. He made this point that those are regions blessed with centuries-old institutions, strong institutions, if not democratic ones, that would allow for governing success like this. And so he saw that coming. And the one thing he also saw coming that I think is really key is he predicted that boredom and democracies coming out of this world without struggle 
without struggle versus the Soviet Union, without a Cold War, would lead people to, I'll quote, struggle against the peace and prosperity and against democracy. And I think he was kind of prescient there, thinking about the rise of autocracy or the rise of would-be autocrats in places like Turkey and places like Hungary and even the United States, that once this kind of question of, okay, liberal economics versus liberal economics, which one is better, and coupled with governance, once that question was solved, people were going to find other things to fight about. And in Turkey, that's been religion. In Hungary, it's been religion, but also immigrants. So the end of history style thinkers, Fukuyama in particular, weren't weren't right on this triumphalism. I mean, they, I don't think autocracy has lost. There, I certainly am a believer in democracy, and I think our systems are better built to withstand the kind of rocky waters of this century than China's one-man autocracy or even the kind of um, the collective governance of a, of a Vietnam or a UAE. But so it's kind of a, a tricky answer where they weren't right about triumphalism or even about a liberal governance having lost its legitimacy. But the book was fairly right about people's struggles against autocracy and the rise of Asian autocracies. Hmm. So it's actually some of the lesser known parts of that book and also that school of thought that have proved the most predictive. OK, let's get to uh, some quick hits here. Uh, and, and keen listeners of this conversation will have maybe already picked up on some of your answers. But when you look out across the vast landscape of global governance, what is the single democracy that you think is most at risk of sliding towards autocracy? And vice versa, are there any autocracies that you're optimistic might be on the brink of, if not democratization, at least some sort of popular reform? I don't have one off the top of my head. I have Come a on, few. you've got to, not, you've no, got to not, give us one. Have... No, I can't. I can't give one. <laughs> I, I, I would say just on the autocracy, questions of democracies that are risk and sliding. I mean, certainly most in the news right now is Peru, hmm. where these ongoing protests against the government. And I don't claim to be a Peru expert, but it's there's certainly a chance that that ends poorly. I mean, mass protests, mass uproar can always produce something like a coup. It can always produce a mili you know, military regime stepping in and promising to provide stability. And then the other end of the spectrum, I mean, same end of the spectrum, but different process. I mean, I remain concerned about Israel and Poland. Mm. Uh, I mean, Israel is kind of a separate question in terms of I'm talking about Israel proper, not talking about the Palestinian territories. But if you just talk about Israel proper, there is this concern of the new government basically wanting to do away with the judicial check on their power by veto in parliament. There are all these kind of concerns about appointing illiberal officials to run ministries. Uh, certainly, I would keep an eye on Israel. And this, the Poland story is relatively similar, where you have the Law and Justice Party. It doesn't seem to have much affinity for democratic values or for liberal values and is more keen on doing what they determine to be best for best for the country in their kind of narrowly defined way. So that's kind of, I would argue, actually the process by which somewhere like Hungary or somewhere like Turkey yeah. slipped into the, the autocracy side of the spectrum. I think Poland and Israel, I mean, Israel definitely in Poland probably are a little bit before that. I would still count them as democracies. Certainly, Netanyahu could very easily lose an election. They have free elections all the time. I think the Law and Justice Party could lose an election, although that seems fairly unlikely at this moment, just given their, their popular support. But certainly both of those places are at some risk of their leaders manipulating the systems to entrench their own power in a way that will be difficult to undo. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I don't really have any autocracies that I think are at, at risk, but that could soon turn into democracies. But I think there are 
middling democracies in the middle that are actually in a fairly better spot than they were maybe two years ago. So I'm actually quite optimistic about Malaysia, which has had a democracy, not a super, I would say, institutionally strong one, but is a democracy. And they have had years of a domestic, of a right. de- kind of democratic political chaos, just like multiple governments changing over. Somewhat of a, a constitutional scandals. crisis late last year. Yeah, but that they recently had an election that produced a fairly stable government. I mean, it took a lot of negotiating, but they have a government now headed by the opposition, but the former ruling party is the minority party and in that coalition. And to their credit, they sent the former corrupt prime minister to prison and have not yet pardoned him, which is actually not something that, as you would think about, not something many other democracies can say. I mean, South Korea has sent three or four former leaders to prison, but then eventually basically just pulls them out and says, okay, sorry, like your old will pardon you. France has done something similar with Sarkozy where he was found guilty, but is probably not even going to serve much prison time, if if any prison time. So Malaysia's ability to kind of form a coherent government, a functional government for now, and hold that former prime minister accountable is actually a very positive thing for me, both in Asia and around the world. And just kind of two other quick hits, I would say, Nepal, to his credit, had fairly free and fair elections a few weeks ago. Um, not not perfect by any means, but not not kind of totally tilted in one direction. And and Ecuador surprisingly has improved uh, under Moreno, who was chosen by the predecessor to kind of the pre- kind of uh, authoritarian leaning predecessor to continue his legacy. And on the other hand, has somewhat liberalized as has Chile since since twenty twenty two. But I mean, given setbacks in like a whole number of countries around the world, countries and territories. So I think like Thailand, Myanmar, Nicaragua, Tunisia, and I mean, Hong Kong is, is separate for a variety of reasons. Uh, th- there is probably still more reason to be pessimistic than optimistic. I think there are more countries at risk of falling from democracy to autocracy than improving from autocracies to democracy at the moment. Uh, last question. If Joe Biden or Rishi, Rishi Sunak or Fumio Kishida read this book, and took one piece of policy advice away, what would you want it to be? Yeah, rather than picking one specific policy, I would kind of maintain this top recommendation that flows throughout the book is, is to not be complacent and to be brave. And I think Biden, to his major credit, has, I think, probably taken on a fair bit of that. Uh, the UK has a whole number of domestic difficulties that I think are making bold policy thinking a little difficult. but. I think being bold is really key here, being bold and being brave, because fixing the decline in our democracies is going to require bold action across the board that might sometimes be uncomfortable. Politicians don't always like to be more transparent. They don't always want to cooperate with the private sector. They don't always want to spend more money on things like human capital and infrastructure or to increase immigration, all of which are key to meeting the kind of challenge of today. So we're going to need politicians who are brave, and we will need to hold them accountable at the ballot box if they don't. This is not a reason to be defeatist. I mean, democracy is certainly messy, but we are and always have been resilient. Our, our struggles are not a reason to justify autocracy, to, to bring in a strongman or anything anything like that. There is no system for me, and I strongly believe this for everyone, there is no system better than democracy. Democracy right now is not our problem. Faith in its automatic functioning is. Do not go gentle into that good night, Charles. Thank you so much for coming on and congrats again. Sounds good. Thank you. And that is going to do it for this inaugural presentation of Intrigue Out Loud. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
you may have heard me say at the beginning that this conversation was meant to be only 20 minutes long, but you know what they say about best laid plans. If you want to get in touch with guest ideas for whatever comes next to this channel, or heck, if you want to be a guest yourself, uh, please reach out to me over email at Ethan at internationalintrigue.io, or you can follow me on Twitter at Ethan Plotkin underscore. I'll be back on here soon enough, but in the meantime, please subscribe to the International Intrigue newsletter to get all the info about our upcoming audio content. That's it. That's all I got. Bye for now.